I next met with Dr. Kelly Hunt, and to begin, she commented on perhaps the most discussed current issue in breast cancer surgery, evolving indications for axillary node dissection, and what we know about the morbidity of the procedure. It's been studied a lot better in the context of some of the sentinel node trials than it has been in the past in terms of lymphedema and how axillary node dissection impacts quality of life, shoulder function, paresthesias, and issues like that that patients contend with for many years after the treatment of their breast cancer. Do you think at this point maybe the problems associated with axillary dissection are still maybe being underappreciated? I think so. I hear lots of surgeons tell me that they never see lymphedema in their practice. And I know that some surgeons may not follow their patients long-term. They may have a medical oncologist that they partner with, or patients may not return to them but go to their general practitioner for follow-up. And that's when, if you don't follow your patients, you're not going to see some of these issues that come up. And certainly, lymphedema is one that most patients fear the most. They're always asking me about it when they're undergoing surgery, even with sentinel node surgery, where we know the rates of lymphedema are so much less than axillary node dissection, but patients are still incredibly fearful of it when you're removing lymph nodes. And yet, I don't think that most of the studies have been well described in terms of what is the true incidence of lymphedema? It depends on how you measure it, how often you see the patients. Did they receive radiation? Did they have breast conserving surgery or a mastectomy? You know, all of those things impact lymphedema rates. And so I think depending on what types of patients you see in your practice, if you see a lot of early stage patients, maybe the rates are lower than they are in those patients who have more advanced breast cancer where they get an axillary node dissection with comprehensive radiation. And so, you know, there will be differences depending on what types of patients you see in your practice. How do you think through the situation of whether to do an axillary dissection in a patient with a positive sentinel node? Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion about this since the ACASOG trial came out. Right. The ACASOG trial, which was just published in 2011, was actually designed in the mid-1990s, based on data from the NSABP B04 trial and other historical studies where we did not have the standards for systemic therapy, we didn't have necessarily the understanding of biologic subtypes like we do now, and really Z11 was designed before its time. It was a little ahead of its time because the other sentinel node trials that were going on at the time that that trial started were still trying to understand the use of sentinel node versus axillary dissection in node negative patients like the NSABP B32 trial. So I think Z11 was difficult to accrue to in the setting of many surgeons still weren't really comfortable with sentinel node surgery alone. And I know that surgeons where I was working at that time were saying, well, I can do a great axillary node dissection. I get good staging information from that. The patients do fine afterwards, so I don't need to learn how to do sentinel node surgery. And this was at the same time that Z11 was just ramping up where some surgeons were already asking the question, if you find a positive sentinel node, do you need to do a completion node dissection in all cases? And at that time, I think there were still a lot of issues regarding 
the technical aspects of sentinel node surgery as well. So there wasn't the delineation of micrometastasis versus macrometastasis. The HACC staging system was just undergoing revisions around that time. So the trial didn't stratify patients based on age or number of positive nodes or even micromets versus macromets. So issues like that that have developed since then give us a whole different outlook today. But at the time the trial was designed, the major question was, was there any difference in overall survival of patients who had a positive sentinel lymph node, whether they were treated with an axillary node dissection or had no further axillary-specific treatment in the setting of women undergoing breast-conserving surgery and whole breast radiation? I guess one of the things that I'm not sure, again, sort of thinking about historically, if people were thinking about at that point, which is the potential benefit of the radiation therapy that they were going to get in terms of the axilla. I think there was an understanding that that probably had an impact because that's why the trial was designed to only include breast conserving surgery and whole breast radiation. Of course, partial breast radiation had not penetrated the medical community like it has now, and there weren't as many different techniques for partial breast irradiation delivery like there are now. But there were some brachytherapy techniques and others at the time, and I think people understood that there was some treatment of the axilla with tangential breast irradiation fields. And so the trial was designed such that only patients undergoing breast-conserving surgery planned for whole breast irradiation were included, hoping that it would be a more homogeneous population and that there wouldn't be the question of mastectomy patients who were not receiving radiation causing some difficulty in analyzing the outcomes. What were the high points from your point of view of the data that were collected And kind of what does it mean to you right now in your practice? Right. Well, the high points are probably the fact that it was actually a very homogeneous population. I've heard some criticisms in that, well, you know, it's all ER-positive patients and T1 tumors or whatever. But certainly that's a lot of the patients that we do see in practice now are women who are postmenopausal that have a screen-detected breast cancer or small palpable breast cancer that are candidates for breast conservation, clinically negative axillary nodes, and so sentinel node surgery and breast conservation are the standard practice in that group of patients. So the fact that so many of the patients were postmenopausal, had T1 tumors, low to intermediate grade tumors, they were mostly low and intermediate grade as opposed to high grade. I think it does help in my current practice to generalize the findings from Z11 to that patient population. There were fewer patients that had estrogen receptor negative tumors. There weren't as many young patients in the analysis that were accrued to the study. And so it's a little harder to generalize the results to those patients now who have, you know, young patients with triple negative breast cancers and those situations. But certainly the high points are that when I see a postmenopausal patient who has a small tumor that's got one positive sentinel node or two positive sentinel nodes, especially in the setting of micrometastasis, then I'm very comfortable with omitting axillary node dissection when they're planned for whole breast radiation. And what about the patient who's having a mastectomy? That's still the controversial area. Now, 
There is some data coming out from the International Breast Cancer Study Group trial that was just presented at San Antonio, the 2301 trial. It was presented but hasn't been published yet. So in that trial, there were some patients treated with partial breast irradiation, and there were also patients treated with mastectomy. Now, it was a smaller percentage of the patients that were accrued to the study, but the results are essentially identical to the Z11 trial, suggesting that in certain patients, perhaps axillary node dissection can be omitted even when whole breast radiation or chest wall radiation is not going to be used. You also mentioned the issue of pathologic analysis of sentinel nodes. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Right. So a couple trials that were published in the last year or two, the NSABPB32 trial and the ACASOG Z10 trial, both looked at that question and as you know, that I mean, decades of data suggesting that micrometastases might be important in selecting patients for treatments or they might be predicting for decreased overall survival. And essentially what the B32 and Z10 trial have shown is that for patients with early stage breast cancer, you can detect more occult metastases isolated tumor cells or micrometastases by doing serial sectioning and immunohistochemistry of the sentinel nodes. But it doesn't seem to have a clinically meaningful impact on outcome, such that in B32, there was a 1.2% difference in survival rates between the patients who had occult metastases versus those who did not. In Z10, there was no difference in outcome whether there were IHC-positive cells in the sentinel nodes. And so I think that in the ACASOG trial, there were fewer patients that were studied, number one, and also there were fewer sections of the sentinel nodes. And I think most of the studies will show that the more you look, the more you're going to find. And certainly when you're identifying the sentinel nodes, if the pathologist is going to section through the short axis of the node and then that is going to be embedded in paraffin and you're going to have multiple sections through each of those paraffin blocks and then do immunohistochemical staining on each of those sections, you're going to find cells in those nodes that will be cytokeratin positive. The question is, how should we use that data? I think it's probably more important now as we understand the biology of breast cancer, breast cancer subtypes, and other important prognostic and predictive markers in breast cancers that we look at that as opposed to looking for a cytokeratin-positive cell in the sentinel node to decide on how a patient should be treated with systemic therapy. I'm kind of curious, and I've been asking investigators lately, what kinds of cases and questions you most commonly receive as a second opinion from surgeons in practice? Well, I think the things that tend to come up over and over for me are, should the patient have an MRI for the evaluation of the breast? Sometimes I get emails from patients because they say that their physician does not want to do an MRI and they want to have an MRI and they want to know about how they should get that test done if needed. The other issue that comes up is frequently whether or not they should have an axillary node dissection. And that's especially true over the last year since the ACASOG trial was published, but even before that, I would get that email frequently. And it's usually in the setting of micrometastases. 
although occasionally I'll see that for macrometastases as well. And then the other thing is whether or not they need chemotherapy. So fortunately, with newer tests like the Oncotype DX or the 21-gene recurrence score assay, we have some tools that can help us decide besides just the things that we used to use, tumor size, nodal status, or age, and other things. Because in the past, it seemed like your answer might be, well, if you were my mother or my sister, this is what I would recommend. But now we have, I think, more tools to help us make better decisions about which patients are really going to benefit. So I wanted to ask you also about a concept I know you have an interest in, surgical management of centrally located breast cancers. So the basic idea was trying to identify patients who in the past would have undergone mastectomy because there is a need for resection of the nipple areolar complex or significant retro areolar tissue that would create a cosmetic deformity. And so what the presentation reviews is how we evaluate these individuals deciding on which techniques might give them the best outcome for breast conservation. That's looking at breast size, the size of the defect that's anticipated, whether or not skin needs to be resected with the nipple areolar complex or additional skin, and then trying to decide about local flaps that can be used, breast reduction techniques in patients who have larger breasts with significant ptosis, or whether you might need to provide additional volume in a woman who has a smaller breast with even a relatively small defect. Sometimes local flaps or latissimus flap can be inset, and you can actually maintain the cosmetic appearance of the breast and give them good long-term outcomes with breast conservation. Usually, the first thing that I look at is whether or not there's evidence of actual nipple areolar complex involvement. So, you know, many times a subareolar lesion won't actually require resection of the nipple areolar complex, but there are ones where you're going to have to do that. So Paget's disease of the breast, and I recently saw a patient who had Paget's disease of the nipple. There was some extension onto the areola. And so, of course, I knew I was going to need to resect the nipple and a portion of the areola. In the past, I think we've thought that, well, if you had Paget's, you had to remove all of the areola. But actually, you don't have to. You just need to resect the grossly abnormal area. And, of course, we do look for margins. This is a patient who also had a normal mammogram and a normal ultrasound. So actually, this was a case where I felt like MRI was useful because we know that most patients who have Paget's disease of the nipple will have an underlying non-invasive or even an invasive breast cancer. So we did do the MRI to try to understand what might be the extent, if any, of disease in the subareolar breast tissue. And the MRI was negative. And so when we did the resection, we actually removed the nipple. And as I said, part of the areola, all of the areolar skin that was clearly abnormal involved with Paget's, and then some of the breast tissue underneath the nipple areolar complex. And then we essentially used volume from the lower part of her breast to inset behind the nipple. And then we used a purse string type closure where we could bring the remaining areolar skin back together and sort of create the semblance of a nipple, which then after radiation, she'll be able to have tattooing of the areola to create a larger 
areola to match the contralateral breast. Now, what was the size of this woman's breast, and how does that factor in? Right. So she had a C-cup breast, and so it's easier to do tissue rearrangement or oncoplastic techniques in a woman who has a C or D-cup breast. Patients who have smaller breasts typically are going to require some type of volume replacement using something like a latissimus flap. Of course, there are a number of other flaps, which our plastic surgeons will use, sometimes tap flaps and you know other things. We try not to utilize tram flaps or deep flaps. We try to reserve those for the setting of a complete mastectomy. But there are many other local flaps you can use to inset to provide volume replacement. And so in a patient with a smaller breast, you're almost always going to have to replace that volume with something, or else you're going to have to significantly reduce the contralateral breast to provide symmetry. And what are you projecting is going to be the cosmetic result for this particular patient? And maybe you can talk a little bit more about her attitude in general about this. Well, I expect her cosmetic result to be good because I think that we anticipated the amount of volume we were going to need to remove and we're able to replace that. And on the opposite breast after radiation, we'll need to do a mastopexy because some of the ptosis in the breast is going to be gone after we've moved the tissue and replaced the volume. So long term, she will need something done to the other breast after she's completed radiation. We usually wait about six months because that gives you a good idea of how much difference there's going to be in terms of symmetry. Usually by that time, you'll know that. So I expect her to have a good result. We've used this technique many times, and so I think it's a pretty useful technique. Now, in this case, this patient, you know, as I said, she had Paget's disease. She was not keen on having a mastectomy. She knew that this was early-stage disease, that it was localized. She really didn't want to have to have a mastectomy, and I think 10, 15 years ago, we would have pretty much routinely done a mastectomy in that setting. And since we know that we're not going to provide her any survival advantage by doing that, I think trying to do breast conservation and preserve her natural native breast as much as possible will give her a good result. I guess this sort of kind of also touches into the whole concept of so-called oncoplastic surgery. I'm not really sure I know exactly what that is. But how does that enter into your practice? And do you think that the average or general surgeon out there who's doing a lot of this surgery is kind of tuned into it? I think so. Most of the meetings that I go to now, there are courses on oncoplastic techniques. There are many different books available now that provide algorithms, sort of like I was describing before for the central breast tumors. And a lot of it is depending on the patient's breast size and also the amount of ptosis that they have. So there are a lot of different local techniques that we can use that don't require more advanced plastic surgery training to be able to give the patient a good cosmetic result. So I've been impressed that now there are You know, initially, I think oncoplastic techniques were mostly using breast reduction to provide patients with a larger breast the option for having breast-conserving surgery and radiation and providing symmetry with the opposite breast since there's significant asymmetry after surgery and breast irradiation. And it's more noticeable, especially in the patients who have a large breast with a lot of ptosis. So I think in the past, it was pretty much all breast reduction surgery for patients with a very large breast. 
Now I think it's really more of an understanding that depending on where you place your incision in the breast, depending on how much volume you're removing, where you're removing the volume from in the breast, all those things are going to be significantly enhanced once you add postoperative radiation. And five years or six years down the line, it's much more difficult to correct those defects that occur than it is to try to correct the defect at the time of the initial operation. So in other words, some women who have a more fatty replaced breast, anytime you remove volume from the inferior aspect of the breast below the nipple areolar complex, it's usually going to cause malpositioning of the nipple and some retraction and contracture of the breast after radiation. And so those are the individuals who really benefit from using some oncoplastic techniques, which is essentially just trying to repair the defect in the breast before you create a more of a difficult situation with postoperative radiation. How about so-called nipple sparing surgery? So that's a technique that's really taken off over the last several years. Patients now are coming in asking for it routinely, even for those patients who have invasive breast cancer. It used to be something that we were using more just for the individuals having prophylactic mastectomy, risk-reducing mastectomy. But now it's really something that women are looking for. I think it's ideally suited for those women who have a medium to small breast. Once you are dealing with a larger breast where there's a lot of ptosis, the nipple positioning can be very challenging, especially when you're trying to match the contralateral breast. And so there are a lot of different techniques that people are starting to use now for those individuals. But I think for the patient who's having risk-reducing mastectomy because they're a BRCA mutation carrier or they have a strong family history or other situations, I think nipple-sparing mastectomy is actually a very, very good technique. You know, sometimes it might not be a perfect cosmetic result, but another aspect is kind of the way it feels, Mm -hmm. retaining the breast as opposed to having a mastectomy. Of course, there's psychological, but what about the actual perceptual sensory difference between partial breast conserving surgery that's not maybe perfect as opposed to mastectomy? I think it depends on the individual patient. But certainly one of the first skin sparing mastectomies I did years ago, I thought it was a great result, and the patient had a tram flap. So, of course, when you use a tram flap, the reconstructed breast feels like the native breast. It looked quite good, and I was very happy with the result. And the patient said, yeah, I look great, but I can't feel anything. And so there are a lot of people who feel like if you retain the nipple, you might retain some of the sensation. It probably really has to do with preserving the nerves from the medial breast and the medial perforators. It's probably one of the more critical aspects of it. But we recently looked at nipple sensation and sensation in a prospective fashion. Gildy Baviera at our institution had a prospective study looking at that. And there is some preservation of sensation with nipple sparing mastectomy. It's probably not as good as breast conserving surgery and radiation, but depending on the location of the tumor in those patients having breast conservation and how much of a boost they get to the operative site and other things, they might not have great sensation in that setting either. Okay, so let's talk about your cases, beginning with your 56-year-old lady. 
Right. So this is a lady who had screening mammograms in the past, but went for a few years without getting a mammogram and then presented for an annual examination with her gynecologist and they felt a mass in the breast. And so she went for mammography at that time and confirmed what was a relatively large tumor in the breast, just over five centimeters. And biopsy proved this to be a HER2 positive breast cancer, ER positive, HER2 positive. And when she came to see me, the feeling was that she needed to go directly to mastectomy. And, you know, that in the past was really the standard approach. She had a medium-sized breast, so if we tried to do a lumpectomy at presentation, it would have really created a marked difference in terms of the size and shape of her breast as compared with the opposite breast. She really was not interested in having a much smaller breast. She was happy the way she was. She didn't know if she wanted to have breast conservation or not. And we evaluated her regional nodes with ultrasound and did not find any suspicious nodes. So we went ahead and treated her on a study, which was a neoadjuvant protocol that was a neoadjuvant chemotherapy with concurrent trastuzumab. And she had excellent response. And during that course of her neoadjuvant therapy, she had more time to investigate breast conservation, postoperative radiation, mastectomy, with or without reconstruction. So by the time she completed her therapy, she came back to me, and she essentially had no obvious tumor on physical exam or on mammography or ultrasound, but she had a clip in place that we had put in, obviously, when she initiated her treatment. And so we were able to do breast-conserving surgery for her with reduction, and contralateral breast reduction as well, so that she essentially maintained her breasts, a little bit smaller breasts. We resected the primary tumor site, as we always do, even though it looks like a radiographic complete response. We always go back and resect that primary tumor site. That's why it's important to have the clip there so we know exactly where the primary tumor was. But we don't try to resect the entire pretreatment volume unless there's any residual calcifications or other radiographic abnormalities. So we were able to do a nice resection. It was in the inferior aspect of the breast, so that's why we used reduction technique in order to reshape the breast at the same time. We also did sentinel node surgery. So we did a sentinel node biopsy after her chemotherapy. So that's been my practice at MD Anderson to do the sentinel node after chemotherapy. as Since we use ultrasound and fine needle aspiration before chemotherapy, we don't do the sentinel node biopsy first, as I know has been a controversial area in some practices. So after we assessed the final pathology, there was no evidence of any viable tumor in the primary tumor site. We had a good assessment of the primary tumor site by pathology. She had three sentinel nodes. They were all negative, and so she was able to go on to whole breast irradiation, and then she'll also receive an aromatase inhibitor in the adjuvant setting. And I guess she'll finish out trastuzumab for, for a year, year, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this lady fortunately had large breasts, but in the patient with smaller breasts, 
who's had neoadjuvant therapy. How do you determine exactly how much tissue to take out, as in this situation, clinically, and everything is kind of going away? Right. So that's a little bit more difficult situation in a patient with a smaller breast, although depending on the location of the tumor, if it's in the superior aspect of the breast or the lateral aspect of the breast, that usually will not change the shape of the breast significantly. So that even in a smaller breast, you can still accomplish breast conservation without needing a flap or other things. It's those patients where it might be right behind the nipple or in the inferior aspect of the breast in a patient with a small breast where you're going to have to start thinking about replacing that volume. But the way that we've done this over the years has kind of varied. I think when we initially started doing breast conservation after chemotherapy, we didn't really understand how much of the volume needed to be resected. But certainly, if there were any microcalcifications in the site of the primary tumor or any questionable lesions outside of the primary tumor, so small satellite foci or anything like that, we do try to resect those. And so that's why that initial evaluation with diagnostic mammogram and ultrasound is so important and marking those areas with clips. So, you know, typically we'll put in a clip at the time of their diagnostic biopsy. But one of the things that we always do is we also, if there's anything questionable about a satellite lesion or other thing, then we'll also mark those so that we can resect that area as well. Because especially in these HER2-positive breast cancers, they'll have dramatic responses to the neoadjuvant therapy. And so if you haven't marked areas that you were concerned about before the chemotherapy, it's very challenging to try to map that out later and come back and reassess it. Now, the one thing that some individuals have used is MRI for assessment of response, and there's some suggestion that that might be a useful tool as well. But again, we haven't routinely utilized MRI in those patients to decide on volume of resection. So I'm really curious about your second case, a 60-year-old woman, because it kind of gets into something that I kind of thought a while back was going to get a lot more popular, and I'm not sure that it has, which is neoadjuvant hormonal therapy. This lady was also treated on an ACASOG trial, which was the Z1031 trial, and she had a relatively large tumor. It was about four centimeters in size. When she presented, nodes clinically negative, ultrasound negative, but she had an ER-positive tumor, and on the ACASOG trial, these patients are selected based on not just whether or not they're ER-positive, but by the all-red score. So they're high all-red score. They're very enriched for strongly estrogen receptor-positive or hormone receptor-positive breast cancers. So she was randomized to one of the three aromatase inhibitors on the trial, and the treatment was for 16 weeks in the neoadjuvant setting, and monthly evaluation with physical exam to assess for clinical response. Each month that she came back and we measured the primary tumor site, it was impressive in that by the time she got to her second or third visit, we were having difficulty saying where really, you know, you couldn't feel it very well anymore. So where do we really say the measurement is? You could feel some thickening and some change, but we weren't really sure where to measure it. So throughout the treatment, she continued to have a, what appeared to be a good clinical response. And then we reassess with mammography and ultrasound before surgery. And based on the mammography and ultrasound, it looked like she had had at least a partial response 
based on our typical measures and rhesus categories and so forth. So we felt like with the reduction that she'd had in tumor size that she was a good candidate for breast conservation. So we offered her that and she was interested in that. We did a lumpectomy and sentinel node and her sentinel node biopsy was negative so she did not have a completion node dissection. She had a very good response. She still did have a small focus of what appears to be viable invasive ductal breast cancer on her pathologic assessment. But based on her overall response to the preoperative treatment, she did not receive any adjuvant chemotherapy. And so, you know, I think she was very happy with, number one, being able to see the response to the neoadjuvant aromatase inhibitor making her more comfortable about using that in the adjuvant setting. Do you see any role? I mean, there's not too much data out there of genomic predictors in the neoadjuvant setting, like Oncotype, to decide whether to give neoadjuvant chemo or hormones. I mean, I'm going to guess that this lady, in general, she presents most places, is either going to have neoadjuvant chemo or mastectomy. Right, exactly. And yet she did so well with this approach. right. There is some data out there showing that Oncotype, you know, will predict uh, response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. I'm not aware of any data on neoadjuvant hormone therapy, but what the Z1031 trial was trying to assess is whether or not some of these molecular predictors like the PAM50 and other things, that's another part of the trial, and also other tools like proliferative index can help guide which patients get which type of treatment. So this is the type of patient, you're right, where depending on which surgeon or oncologist she saw first, she could get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, she could get mastectomy. Depending on her breast size, someone might try to do lumpectomy if she had enough breast tissue for that approach. Or in some cases now, I think that people are doing neoadjuvant hormone therapy off study based on some of the initial results. So you're right. I mean, she could be treated many different ways. And I think that the fact that the ACASOG trial did really enrich for strongly hormone receptor positive breast cancers, that's why we saw such a high clinical response rate in that trial with neoadjuvant hormone therapy as compared with some of the early trials for neoadjuvant hormone therapy. And so I think that's where there's less enthusiasm for neoadjuvant hormone therapy in some communities. I know I've heard surgeons say, well, why would you give this patient with this large tumor hormone therapy when chemotherapy is going to shrink it down? But in fact, those that are strongly estrogen receptor positive don't have as good of a clinical response and certainly not as high of a pathological response with a neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach. So if you select the patients appropriately, you may actually get improved rates of tumor shrinkage with the neoadjuvant endocrine therapy approach. Let's talk about your 48-year-old lady. Okay, so this was a woman who had a pretty large area of calcifications in her upper outer quadrant. She's a 48-year-old woman. She had a screening mammogram at age 45 and then didn't have another mammogram until age 48. And she had this large area of calcifications. She had a core biopsy, looked like all DCIS. And so she was interested in breast conservation. We felt like she was not a great candidate because of such a large area that would need to be resected. 
And so not only is the five centimeter area of calcification is going to be resected, of course, but an area of margin, whatever your margin width is at your institution, but that ends up being a pretty large volume resection. Because her tumor was in the upper outer quadrant, we felt that she would benefit from volume replacement with a latissimus flap. And so what we did was we did the resection. We do intraoperative evaluation of the margins by the pathologist, and we have the specimen, not only whole specimen x-ray to look at the calcifications, but also we section the specimen, the pathologist inks the margins and then sections the specimen, and then we do x-rays of the sections as well. And so we were able to be pretty certain about all of our margins and all of the different dimensions. And so after we did the resection, the plastic surgeon actually did a latissimus flap to inset into the breast. He made a separate incision on the back, but she just had the one incision in the upper outer quadrant. So she had a very good result in terms of cosmesis and was very happy to preserve her breast. So one thing is that you do usually have to anticipate or plan for a larger volume inset with those flaps because they'll get some decrease in the size over time, but also the radiation will also cause some shrinkage of the flap as well. So initially, she was a little concerned that the breast was too large, you know, after the reconstructed flap was inset and so forth. But over time, that shrinks enough that you get symmetry with the opposite breast. So let's finish out with your last patient, the 62-year-old woman. So this is a woman that I treated actually very recently, a 62-year-old postmenopausal woman, had a relatively large tumor in the medial aspect of her breast, T2 tumor, just about 2.5 centimeters in size. Clinically, node negative. We talked about different options for treatment. She did have a fairly large volume of calcifications around the tumor mass. So I was concerned that she might have a larger area of invasive cancer, but certainly also some areas of DCIS around that primary tumor. So I didn't think that she was a good candidate for breast conservation. Also, the location of the lesion made it very challenging, and she had a very small breast size. So we talked to her about mastectomy and reconstruction. The tumor was intermediate grade and was estrogen receptor positive. So she wasn't someone that we would have typically thought of for preoperative chemotherapy, although I guess that could have been an option for her case. But certainly, I didn't think she was going to be a good candidate for breast conservation, regardless of whether the mass shrank or not because of that area calcification. So I didn't think there was significant benefit to neoadjuvant approach here. So we went ahead with the mastectomy, and she had a tissue expander-based reconstruction. And her final pathology showed essentially what we thought it would, in that she did have about a 2.5-centimeter invasive cancer, estrogen receptor positive, and she had a large field of DCIS. We did have clear margins, and she had a couple of sentinel nodes removed at that same surgery that were negative. So in the past, at least in my institution, an otherwise healthy woman with T2 invasive ductal cancer, intermediate grade, and so on, she would have been considered for systemic chemotherapy almost routinely regardless of the nodal status. 
But now that we do have the 21 gene recurrence score assay, we sent the tissue for that testing and the recurrence score was six. So I think we were all very comfortable at that point that she could avoid chemotherapy. She could go on to complete her reconstruction. She was treated with an aromatase inhibitor, but I think she was very comfortable with that information as were her treating clinicians as opposed to in the past where we would frequently, you know, wonder, well, you know, the tumor's over one centimeter in size. That's our cutoff. It's intermediate grade. It might be, you know, a little bit more aggressive. Probably you need chemotherapy just in case. Whereas now I think having this type of tool, we can more comfortably avoid that treatment. And actually, I just met for the first time your medical oncology colleague, Dr. Ana Maria Gonzalez. Right. Uh And, you know, know, talking about this thing of biology versus, you know, sort of anatomy, Mm -hmm. she's running a trial looking at oncotype in node-positive patients. Right. You're putting patients in that study? Yes. How do you Uh feel about that? Well, I think it's certainly, again, those patients who have a low recurrence score, that's where I think people are going to be pretty comfortable because some of these ER-positive breast cancers that have been, you know, around for a long time, they may have one or two positive nodes, but we know in practice after treating these women for years and years that in general, they still do quite well. And so having a low recurrence score, I think people will be comfortable avoiding chemotherapy in that setting. But again, it's those intermediate ones that are challenging. And there's probably a significant percentage of those individuals that won't benefit from chemotherapy. 